This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. I have been sitting on this interview since September of 2018. I was hiding it because I was really worried about the quality of the audio, so I've just locked it away in the vault until now. This was the third interview that I've ever recorded for the show, and needless to say, it was, and really still is, a very big deal. I had the opportunity to spend some time with our guest in my backyard apiary. You'll hear cars and crows and airplanes in the background, but more importantly, you'll get to hear a candid conversation with the author of Honeybee Ecology, Wisdom of the Hive, Following the Wild Bees, Honeybee Democracy, and his latest book, The Lives of Bees. It's an absolute privilege to share my conversation with Dr. Thomas Seeley. Something smells really good. Is it, it's these cedar, are these cedar chips here? Or, it oh, it's might the be. Hive? It might be the smoker next door. He's been cooking something delicious in the smoker. I'm just smelling but it, the woods. It, it could oh. be the cedar chips are pretty fresh. I think we put them down a couple months ago. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> we don't have that smell at home. Oh so really? I'm, I'm, oh. Yeah. You got to get down to Central Oregon sometime because they have the ponderosa pines oh, and yeah. the air smells like vanilla. <laughs> it's really nice. Vanilla. Yeah. Huh. It's just, it's, Interesting. It's yeah. How did you start the? I, I've never used a wire hive. Oh. So you started with just the one box and then you made it. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. The one box and then when they had it pretty much full and there was enough time left in the foraging season, I thought, okay, let's get them another box and see what happens. So I took one frame out of the, their box they had been using, brought it down to the, the new box, and boy, they filled it up quick, hmm. really quick. And then when I added the third box, just I did the same thing, just give them a slice of comb from up here, moved it down. I love the concept of uh, having an eco floor yeah. in the hive. In the wild? I've seen all sorts of floors. Some in some cavities, it's just a pile of punk wood down there. Yeah. But in others that have been there longer, it, it seems I've seen the thing closed off like it's a linoleum floor. They they might be um, like with propolis. Soft. Yeah, with propolis. Yeah. Oh. It, it could be one that I remember most distinctly was apparently a squirrel had lived in this cavity, so there were <gasps> lots of nuts. Um, yeah, I I just did a a cutout uh -huh. and I found a lot of nuts. Yeah, near, yeah. <laughs> and they had, in this colony, they had just propolized that whole thing over in, wow. into a perfectly clean layer. But it's clearly that's that doesn't get the first attention. They they do their work up at the top, and mm -hmm. as the nest builds down, they'll they'll work the propolis down. Another colony that I'm taking care of, they have the lower entrance and a top entrance. They propolized the top entrance shut yeah. but then they opened it hmm. and then they shut it again oh, cool. and on the inside you can see this they, they have a, like 
it's the size of a pink pearl eraser, you know, just a big chunk of propolis just there for them to, to work, work with. with. Yeah. Oh, that is really neat. I, nobody's looked at that. I, I mean, people have looked at what they do and they have to, you know, stuff cracks and things like that. But what stimulates them to build a whole wall? And, and this, this thing that you've just described, I've never seen that. So how, tell me again what, you, what that is, they, what so, they do. Well, the they, ones that shut the, the lower entrance of their Langstroth, okay. last year this colony had no bottom entrance at all. It was solid. They only had a Walled top. it all off. They had just well, that's all that I gave them. I, they didn't have a regular bottom board. It was just on on a board. So no no lower entrance at all. Just a top entrance. Oh okay. This year I got some really nice screened bottom boards and I gave them that and I left the insert in and they just reject. <laughs> they just closed off the lower entrance to the outside yeah. with propolis and just continued using the upper entrance. That's However. They opened it back up at peak yellow jacket and hornet season and stationed, you know, 20 guard bees right outside of their propolis wall. And I just wonder, why did they open that up? Mm. Or why didn't they close it back up if, if they had to station so many guards there? They, they didn't end up closing it back up. Is there any chance the wasps opened it up? Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Because they would, Yeah. They, they could certainly do that. It's a material that could work as well as the bees, if not better. Wow. And, you know, their mandibles are much more for cutting wood and things like that, so they could probably slice through it in a way that the worker honeybees don't. Yeah, there's a lot about propolis that is still very mysterious. Mm. I mean, most people look at the constituents of it and things like that, but how the bees are actually using it, that is interesting. I had this gentleman from Japan. He was very patient and he was really interested in propolis and so he he took a he was with us for a year and his study subject was how do they regulate their collection of propolis and what he found was that the bees that collect the propolis are distinct from the bees that actually stuff it and put it in the cracks sometimes a propolis collector will come home with propolis on her legs but also a ball in her mouth if she has the stuff in her mouth she will go and she'll caulk what's what we call it caulking but she doesn't once she's used cocked with what she's brought home in her mandibles, she then goes and stands near the work area. It's usually in an observation eye. It's usually where the glass meets the wooden frame. And then she would stand there. And if she if she was unloaded quickly, within a few minutes, then she'd go out again. But if she stood there a long time, then she tended not to collect more. So she was using her waiting time, evidently, to know the judge, the supply and demand ratio. What you've described sounds really interesting because it sounds like these bees kept collecting it was long a, after there was... A total excess. Just made a, a pile. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that that's just showing that there's another way that not every bee colony works the same. I mean, there's, there's a lot of similarity. Ones that are real big on propolis. I like the bees that are heavy propolizers. In my experience, those are the ones that are more robust or hmm. healthier. Yeah. Do you think do you have a you have a feeling whether it's because they're healthy they're good at propolizing or is it because they're propolizing they're they're healthy? We're finding the, the ones that live out in the woods. Yeah. They've got a lot going for them. They've got like 98% of the cells get opened up within 48 hours. Wow. And they've got and they're also really good at biting. If you put uh, a sticky board beneath them, the colony, they 
and you collect the mites, you find that about 40% of the mites are missing their legs uh, or oh, mouth parts, oh. so they're getting chewed. And then the bees have this other thing that was recently discovered in Germany, or Norway actually, where they find that colonies that are resistant to the mites, they have this trick of just uncapping a brood cell, not taking out the, uncapping an infected brood cell, they can sense whether there's mites in there, and then recapping it after some period of time. I don't think it's that many hours, though I don't know if it's, it's sure. And that also just seems to mess up the Varroa's reproduction. I don't know about you, but when I open up a hive, I feel like there's more mysteries in front of me than there is understanding. The part of the biology where I think, I feel like I understand it, at least more more understanding than mystery is the swarming process. The, not the process in the hive, but what happens outside once they've clustered and once they're going through their decision-making. Because at that point, they have just one problem to solve, find a home. Yeah. They're not trying to collect food. They sometimes will collect some water for cooling, but and it's all out in the open, too, so you can watch it. And you maybe know we've built swarms where every bee is labeled for individual identification. Oh, my gosh. And then you can really track what the individuals do. And then it's then the patterns become really clear yeah. how, they, how they work together. <laughs> The variability of workers too. Some are very dedicated. They do. They go out and they scout. They find something. They report back. They're just diligent. They stay with it. They contribute a lot. And others follow a dance and go out and check out the site. And then they come back and then they might not dance or they might do a little half-hearted dance. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's like that bee didn't contribute much. <laughs> Had a variability though. That bee might not have been a great nest site scout, but she might have been wonderful in some other role. Like there's these bees that in the winter go out and collect the water. I mean, those bees are really, they can do it. It's been studied in Austria and and again in Scotland where cold places with cold. The bees will go out to, down to about three degrees centigrade. So that's about nine-fifths, it's about 37 degrees Fahrenheit. They'll go out to chilly water and load up with water. But if you watch those bees through a thermographic camera, you can see that while that bee is sucking up water, she's shivering to keep her flight muscles warm enough so she can fly home. I mean, she's wow. really, she's right at the limit of what, it's a very dangerous task. Because if she ever loses warmth, she'll never recover it. She has to keep it warm enough so that she can Don't get, get distracted. Home. Stay focused. Right. <laughs> get the water and get home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, they, um, and they, they try not to go very far. Wow. It's, it's real dedication you might say and it, it's it also is a real clear marker of how thirsty they can be i mean those bees must be desperate to do that and that's that those observations incidentally were made in january when they it's not like they're at the height of the brood rearing where they would need a lot of i think they just need the water to stay with their you know osmoregulation not get dehydrated the individuals come back to the exact same pebble and they're oh my very God. specific that's so incredible her situation she's got tattered wings or she's a pretty proboscis is out yeah she's she's she's, uh gone for the long sleep but see how shiny her abdomen is Mm -hmm. she's an elderly bee but i was going to see if her wings are tattered doesn't look like they look pretty good they look pretty good
So I've heard that the the shiny abdomens can also be indicators of a, a viral yeah. infection. Could be. That's tough. She's still got a little bit like a bee that a yellow jacket <laughs> found. Anything else we got here? Well, here's a dead yellow jacket. Mm-hmm. So they probably did their work on it. Wow. So I had a friend join me in my apiary recently and he also, with beekeeping, he also does yellow jacket nest removals. Oh yeah. And he wears the same suit. Yes. And I opened up one of my hives and I had him lift off a box and they just came exploding out of it. Oh, because there's such like a, a strong response. Yeah, he had to get out of there. I put the hive back together, but they chased him pretty far. And this hive is usually pretty easy to work with. So mm-hmm. I, I told him, get a suit for your yellow jacket work and get another one for your bee work. It's really interesting. I can believe that. One of my students studied yellow jackets, and when he would collect the nests, he would he would wear a bee suit and he'd wear a bee veil. Mm-hmm. But he also inserted, and I don't know if your friend did this, a sheet of acetate or something, oh. something clear, because he said they they will shoot venom. They can they can Ew. shoot venom, yeah, into, oh my gosh. into your eye, and that's not good. I mean, yeah, wow. Um, so yeah, his your friend's suit may be smelling it's... like wasp venom and particularly when he went to set the box down it was when it got close to his knees and below it's when they really came pouring out the hundreds of them so i wonder you know honeybees have parasites and viruses what what do yellow jackets have are are they up against anything like that or is it transferable to them is it probably the viruses aren't Probably the parasites aren't either. Or maybe it doesn't take a stronghold on them because they don't overwinter like the honeybees do. Yeah, that's true. They, they get a fresh start every spring. The inside of their nests are pretty can get pretty raunchy by the end of the summer, though. Oh, gosh. I can imagine. They're de- <laughs> the yellow jackets are definitely understudied insects because they're so hard to work with. I mean, these honeybees are so flaccid, really. Yeah. But, you know, you have to have be sympathetic. Those yellow jackets are defensive for a reason. It's because there's a lot, they nest usually in the ground. They're really vulnerable. I don't really know how your seasons, un, you know, unroll here. But back at home, our colonies are really winding down in their brood rearing. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's that's happening here as well. It'll and be over by the middle of... Sometimes the first week or the second week of October, it's usually the last of the brood has emerged. Yeah, when I was inspecting that top bar behind you just the other day, their brood chamber or brood nest was just down to two frames. I like the way they store pollen <laughs> over winter, so they've got stuff ready to go. <laughs> because I'm seeing bees bringing in pollen. Yeah. And even though it's the end of the day, that's fuel and need for it. Look at that one. Oh, she's. I like the coloring on her. She's a yeah. She's <laughs> um, she's a pretty attentive guard too. She walks right around. Oh oh oh! <laughs> Try 
again. Wow, very fast. Very responsive. They really have to get that wasp at the entrance. I see with the observation hives that those wasps, once they get in there, it's amazing. They can just bully their way through and get a load of honey and then fight their way back out. It's just incredible. It's like those wasps are wearing armor or something. Oh, yeah. They're really hard to sting and keep them out. I, I tried to deal with a wasp nest or a yellow jacket nest once with some diatomaceous earth. <laughs> did not even penetrate like it just did nothing oh, no. <laughs> they, they were just usually little little white yellow jackets flying around one of my best teaching tools is in our animal behavior class in the fall i set up two observation hives and the students they come in and they have a worksheet it's a, where they have to first choose a behavior and it could be something like just fanning or being a guard or something and they have to describe it with a drawing as well as words and they have to come up with hypotheses about it's what stimulates the bee to do it how it knows how to do it its development what its function is and from what it evolved and it's it really is it it's an unusual situation where students actually have to look at an animal <laughs> and see what it's doing what it's what the body movements are Probably some level of intuition. Yeah. I mean, it's like natural history. People just don't watch stuff very much now. And some of the students just do these really stunningly detailed and accurate and precise descriptions. And others just, it's like a little cartoon. <laughs> it's, it's The variation of the performance is really wild. And the, the oh. students that I'm grading them, like if a student does a beautiful one, I'll, I'll write his or her name on my list of potential kids to hire the next summer. Oh, it's incredible. Really <laughs> but, I, but what made me think of that is those yellow jackets. If a yellow jacket gets in one of those observation hives, the students go wild because they're just so impressed that this little yellow jacket, vastly outnumbered, can just push its way through. I mean, they are clearly built for doing that kind of mm -hmm. job. Wow. Our little friends, the bees, they go to flowers. They're not built for fighting into fighting into the into a wasp nest or even a. And they're very. You've probably watched robbers. Just how mm. cautious they are. Sneaky. You know the word I would use would be timid. They really mm. don't press an attack. It has to be really. If there's if there's guarding, they, they really don't don't try try hard. I had a bait hive with Langstroth hive. It was getting robbed out. I was sitting on the shed on the side of my barn, and I thought, oh, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that down. I'm going to put some combs in an observation hive. Combs are being robbed out, and I, I did that, and the bees, the robbers shifted from the shed and moved down to the observation hive, which I put in the shed. And then I could watch what the robbers do inside a hive, which I've never seen. And it, it's really cool. They, they run across the combs till they find somebody that's already open to sell. They're very efficient. They don't, they don't invest, they don't invest in oh, cracking open a new cell. They'll find it. And then they just put their tongue in and then they just sit there for like seven minutes because drinking up honey is really thick. It's slow. And, and sometimes you'll see like five bees clustered around the same little cell where one bee has opened a little hole and they all got their little tongues poking in. And I was really interested in that because those little robbers are just 
perfect for the Varroa to climb onto. If it's calm, oh. it's collapsed from Varroa. Yeah. That those robbers are the ticket for the Varroa out of there, and they're a great conveyance. It's, we now understand that that's when we talk about mite bombs. It's probably that, from what our measurements reveal, it's not like the mites explode out. It's that robbers go in and the mites ride yeah. the robbers out. They get around. That looks like they haven't extended their nest to the tippy top. Mm -mm. And the the bottom of the nest is about here. Mm -hmm. But I sure have loved having it here. Tell me why. Because it just... I think it's humbling mm -hmm. because you're beekeeper and you're managing your colonies. You're taking care of them. You're doing all these things for them. But with this, they're doing everything themselves. Yeah. And it's just, it's been a really wonderful experience for me to have this. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good reminder that you know, the bees don't need our hives. Yeah. <laughs> That's for our pleasure to put them in the boxes. I, I monitor, it's, it var the number varies, but it's between 20 and 30 bee trees. I just check them, and I check them in May and yeah. to see if they got through the winter. I check them in July to see if they're still alive. Or if it's a, if it's a site that where there's dead, a colony died, I can see if it's been reoccupied. And then I check them in September to see if they're going into the winter. And, and these are completely unmanaged colonies. And uh, but about twenty percent die each year. Yeah. But you know, it's it's interesting. It balances out almost perfectly because with the colony deaths and then the swarms. Yeah, the that twenty percent of yeah. the established colonies that die over a winter. Well, they're replaced because. The previous summer, all of the colonies make a swarm, and 20% of those swarms make it through their first winter. <laughs> so it, it's, it really is a stable, uh, quite a stable situation. Established colonies, a fifth of them die, and a, and a fifth of the new ones caused, started by swarms survive the first winter. It's not, not a high percentage, but it balances it out. Hmm. So swarms, we're, we do swarms a real favor in catching them and putting them in a hive. They're, at least in my part of the world, their chances of survival are, are quite good in May, early in the swarming season, but June, July, anything after June is dismal. Wow. There's just not much time to, for them to build up. Our swarm season wraps up. Yeah, what is your it's, swarm season? It's late April through late June. Hmm. I, I caught a couple early July, but they've needed a lot of oh, care. Yeah. and. I would say anything after the. <laughs> if it's starting in April, I would say any anything in June or beyond is going to be challenged. Yeah, and this year weather-wise, it's been really tough. It's just been so dry that there just isn't there hasn't been a lot of resources out there for them. Now my tree hive here, it came out of winter with a very robust population. And it, the first swarm that it threw off in the year, the, the entire front was just covered. And they stayed like that for days. And they ended up having seven or eight swarms this year. And the last swarm, I think, did them in because they just haven't, they haven't recovered. Sometimes we see that. There's some colonies that swarm themselves to death. Yes. It makes sense from the perspective of the virgin queens, because they would, if you're an after swarm, if, you know, your mom's left, and if there's a lot of other queen cells in there, you really want to get out with a swarm. You don't want to stay at home, because you're going to get 
your chances of survival. So, mm. But I don't know why that, I mean, I can understand it from the Virgin Queen's perspective, but why the workers buy into that yeah. isn't obvious. I think that this colony also uh, has struggled with mites. I've seen deformed wings coming out of it. I see. I haven't seen the deformed wings in any of my other colonies back here. Yeah. Not to say that it's not present, but reportedly this colony had been in the tree hollow for five to six years when I got it. If the wax in there and everything just is so old. It's uh, possible. We know so little about that, the effect of that. The aged combs, uh, it's kind of a new, we're in new territory with all the pesticides. It used to be that mm. uh, when I, you know, before there was a lot of spraying of pesticides back in the, in the 60s and 70s, I knew commercial beekeepers that just used combs that were 20, 30, 40 years old. Wow. But I think now there's just more junk and wax is a great magnet for it, or sponge, I guess is a better term. Yeah, there might be something in that. In England and the UK, the beekeepers are taught to only use a comb for three years, but they're in an environment where there's so much agriculture and so much herbicide use and pesticide use. It's it may be a different world. Mm. I mean, this this isn't a big ag area around here. No, not not close to here. I think out at the farm where I keep my, my other bees. And you know that now that I think about it, that apiary is one that I've seen what I suspect are pesticide poisonings. I've never seen that here at home. Dead bees on the... Yeah, like a giant pile, or sometimes they are on the landing board and they just have that look to them, like they... Yeah, they're weak, they can fall off. They're convulsing. It can be really episodic, too. I was just over in Scotland and staying with a beekeeper, and her... She has six colonies in her backyard, and one of them, one out of six... We, we came home and noticed there was a pile of, she has a slate in front of the front of each hive. There was just like 150 dead bees, and they were just like you described for a pesticide kill. They're there, they're on their back, they're, they're all curled up. They're not dead, but they're, they're twitching. And so she collected them. She sent them off for pesticide analysis, which their government does. And I haven't heard back. But the curious thing is it, it only was that day. It was like those bees got into something that day, and then I guess the person sprayed, and the spray was potent for that afternoon. Mm. And then the next day, there were, it was gone. And that phenomenon of bees dragging themselves out and then crashing and twitching, and yeah. uh, their nervous system wasn't working. So yeah, it can be it can be patchy. But you don't see that often. Or I've seen it multiple times there, but not not really here. So tell me about what you saw with this colony repeatedly casting swarms. Well, the first swarm, there were just so many bees. You couldn't even see any of the entrance. And they just were on the front of the hive for days. And Mm -hmm. I stood by and watched. (laughs) Um, And when they finally did swarm, I wasn't here. They went way up high into the tree, into an, an unreachable point. Yeah. And were there for maybe two or three hours and then left. But a week later, they did it again. So there would always be this clump of bees hanging on the outside there. And mm. then you're like, okay, I, I think yeah. they're going to do it. And sure enough, and we, we had so many hot days really, really early on. I think that may have been a, a trigger. It helped them. It would have helped them. But the last 
time that it swarmed, it had just this little tiny cluster. And this was very late June. Mm. That same day, I was seeing lots of activity at my bait hive out front. And it got busier and busier and busier. And then a swarm moved in that same day. And then the little beard was gone. So I'm pretty sure that it came from here. Yeah. Just Could be. by how Could quickly be. it happened, the, the beard being there and then it disappearing. Because it wasn't a, a bearding response from heat, I don't yeah. think. And then after that, they just have dwindled. You know, I look at my other hives and I see, I look at the traffic. And the traffic here is not at all what it used to be. But you never know. They may have, they may have inherited a lot of food. Oh, well, you said you saw bees with yeah, deformed bees yeah. plopping out and crashing. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a. Uh, on the other hand, boy, they um, with all those swarms, they must have had a really good long period without any capped brood, and that's usually yeah really hard on the mites. But you know, we were doing the swarm studies. Every swarm was was really an individual in the way it, the speed with which it searched for homes. The, the vigor of the dancing when they found, and these were our standard um, experimental ba- uh, bait hives. It's just, their uh, colonies are really, just like us, really variable, highly variable. For more on Dr. Seely's work and notes from today's show, visit my blog at waggleworkspdx.com. I want to give a special thank you to everyone who has taken the time to send emails or given shout outs on social media or left reviews for the show. And for those of you who have taken your listener relationship to the next level by becoming patrons, all of your support means the world to me. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw. Oh yeah, earwigs, spiders, dead bees, and then you can actually take this this off because it has a, another layer oh, of canvas, which there's more spiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if you wanted to, you could, you could peel that back. Yeah. It's like membrane, yeah. (laughs) So if I ever have to replace this, I'm keeping this because it's so lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can can do different things with bees.